gives us the Bible so that he can make things happen in our lives and through our lives. So we come this morning before his word and this wonderful gift to us from a God who is so kind and cares for us so much. So let's go to him in prayer. Because of that truth, we can come confidently in his son. Lord, we just thank you this morning that we can come and gather together. And Lord, that you yourself are here with us. You have said where two or three gather in your name, there are you in the midst of us. And so Lord, we thank you for that. That here you are in the midst of us. We are gathered here in your name. And Lord, we just give you our time in all aspects. We give you our hearts and our minds, our ears. We give you our bodies this morning. And Lord, we want to hear from you. We want you to speak and to lead us. And so we ask you to help us, Lord. We ask you to manifest your presence. We ask you to speak through your word. And we ask you, Lord, that you would do great and awesome things through your word. And Lord, you would use weak and earthen vessels such as myself to do these things. Lord, I need your help. We need your help. And our confidence, Lord, is in your goodness and mercy and in your promises. So we come to you. And we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be before you and be before your word. We ask you to help us and be glorified, Lord, as we see more of you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's take a look at chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. We're making our way through this section. Paul is addressing the Corinthians' misperception of resurrection. And he is uh, first points to the fact that the resurrection is an essential part of the gospel. There are grave implications if we leave it out. And then he goes on to speak of the resurrection. And in this section, this morning, he begins to describe what the nature of the resurrection is. So let's start in verse 35. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. It's God's word. Give kind of a bottom line here. I believe God, through this passage, is calling us to set our hope fully on the sure promise of new glorious bodies from God at our resurrection. Bodies that have been won by Christ, our champion. To set our hope fully on the sure promise of new glorious bodies from God at our resurrection, won by Christ our champion. You guys know a little bit of background with the Corinthians and that they came from a culture that had a worldview that separated the spiritual and the physical, saw the physical as lesser uh, worth, of lesser worth than the spiritual. They even saw it really as evil and they saw the spiritual as good. And so they brought that cultural perspective probably to the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the gospel. And so they were confused. They were confused about the resurrection. They didn't understand it. They perhaps even mocked it. Paul uh, says someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Whether someone actually asked that or not, we're not sure. But that probably was for some their hard attitude. What is this all about? I mean, this is just silly. It's ridiculous. So the Corinthians have this perspective, and I would submit that we also come to the truth of heaven and the truth of the resurrection with also a a certain amount of confusion ourselves, a certain amount of skepticism as well. There are a lot of ideas about what heaven is like and what our final destiny will be like. Uh, there's all sorts of things out there. Matter of fact, most um, Americans actually believe they're going to heaven. When asked, George Barner has done a report, and basically two thirds of Americans think they're going to heaven, only 1% think they're going to hell. But those ideas of heaven are all over the place. Some people think it's, it's just somehow a place where your soul goes and it's bliss. Some would say it's going to be with God. And, and some of those answers are kind of okay, but there's more to it. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us more about the truth of what, for the believer, our ultimate destiny is. Where, where God is going to bring us eventually in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's listen. Let us learn and trust as we understand these truths. They'll have an impact in our lives. Um, I think that's God's desire that as we understand this and as we set our hope fully on the sure promise of heaven, the sure promise of new glorious bodies from God, won by Christ, that it will change our lives. So let's jump into the flow of what Paul is teaching, what the Lord is teaching us in this passage and learn here. First he says, he has the question that's asked. What, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul begins to answer this sort of question, whether it's an actual question or not, with just kind of analogies from creation. Just kind of plain sense. Common sense. To teach about this. And so he points to seeds. He points to seeds first off. And he says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We are all aware, and probably for them even more so than us, because many of them would have been farmers, that the reality that when you have a seed, you plant it in the ground, and that seed that you have initially is 
essentially dead, at least when you put it in the ground, it becomes dead as, a, as its own entity. And then something springs forth from it that is alive and different as well. It's not just a bigger seed. It's a whole new plant. It's related to the seed, but it's different. And so Paul's saying, just look at seeds. I mean, if you have a problem with that, with the fact that people, when they die, if they're in Christ, somehow are raised from the dead. And, and, and that's, I mean, that may be understandable for us, if you think about it. I mean, what, is, what, what goes on? You die, your body's put in the ground. If you're a believer, you've, you've turned from your sin, you've trusted Christ. You're trusting in His goodness and righteousness and His death on the cross and resurrection for you. And then you are died and you're, you're put in the ground. What happens to your body? Well, you, we know our bodies go back to the original elements that they're made out of. And so maybe the Corinthians were thinking, I mean, what are you talking about? People raised from the dead? I mean, what is this? Going to be the night of the living dead or something? I mean, what's going to happen? This, what are you talking about? And so some of that question is understandable. So Paul points to seeds first. He says, the thing that is sown is dead, but from it comes something that's alive. And the thing that is sown is of one sort, and the thing that comes from it is different. He says, what you sow is not the body that is to be. It's not the actual thing that comes out. It's not the plant, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. God gives seeds a body. God is the one who has created this incredible phenomenon of, of seeds. What's that called? Germination and growth? I'm not sure what the agricultural term is. Mr. Ross, germination, great, and growth. Of, of seeds becoming something different. God is the one who's done that. He's given us that miracle of seeds and plants and life. And it really is incredible. Think of oak trees. We have giant oak trees, glorious oak trees. I love oak trees. I love, I love trees in general. Have you, have you guys ever seen large, like, humongous white oaks? And they're just, I mean, some, I love it when they're in the field by themselves and they just kind of spread out and they're huge and they're beautiful. And they come from an acorn, a little tiny acorn. It, it's totally different. But the root of the oak tree is that acorn. And the acorn's put in the ground, and it dies as an acorn. It, it essentially rots in the ground, does it not? It ceases to be, but from it springs a mighty oak tree. Similarly, in the resurrection. Just as God gives life to a seed and making it an oak tree, something totally different, totally much more glorious than the seed, so it is with the resurrection. So Corinthians, it shouldn't be that hard to understand. If God grants that, then He can grant to us something that is sown, that is corruptible, has perished, even returns to the earth, is raised up in newness of life, a new and glorious life. So He looks to seeds and, and points, makes these points that it's sown in death and it's raised in life. It's sown in one form, it's raised in another. And if we look through Scripture, the rest of Scripture, we see other passages that teach us the same. Romans 8, uh, Paul says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will give life to your mortal bodies. He will give life to your body, your mortal body, what you know now, and create something new out of it. So there's a connection between our life and our bodies now and our future bodies, but the connection, just like a seed and the tree, 
They're connected. It's, the two are very different. And so our bodies now, yes, are connected to our future body, but they're very different. Philippians 3, it says, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Jesus' resurrection body, what He had at the resurrection, He will transform our current bodies to be like that, His glorious body. We will have bodies like Jesus' Jesus's body after the resurrection. New, glorious bodies. It's interesting, if you read the accounts after Jesus rose from the dead, it seems that a lot of people had trouble recognizing Him. They didn't recognize Him right away. Now, we don't know for sure exactly why, but I think one of the reasons might have been is that he was different. He would have looked as he had looked, and we know he bore the scars in his hands and his side and his feet. But I think his new body was significantly different from his old one, so much so that people didn't recognize him right off the bat. Now, there was enough similarity, we know, if you read the passage, that they recognized him eventually, but not right away. The road to Emmaus, he's walking down the road with the two disciples. They were disciples. That means they were followers. They saw Jesus every day or perhaps every week, depending on who they were. They saw Jesus frequently. They knew what he looked like. They knew how he walked. They knew this Jesus. They knew how he spoke. And yet he comes alongside and he's walking with them and they don't recognize him. And it isn't until the end when he breaks the bread that their eyes are open they realize this is Jesus. In the garden, when Mary was there, and John 20 says, Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. So she's in the garden and she's weeping. She doesn't yet know the full story. And Jesus is there. She turns around. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now she probably would have, should have been able to recognize, Oh, Jesus! But she, she didn't. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She recognized, this is Jesus. This is my Jesus. See, he was different. His, his resurrection body was different than his previous one. It was more glorious. And that's the sort of body that we're going to get. Now, we don't know all the details. I'm going to get into it a little more later on in this section. Paul talks about what it's like. We don't know all the details, but it, we know it's going to be better. I think perhaps what they experienced when they saw Jesus is what kind of the inverse of what we experience when we go to high school reunions. If you go to a high school reunion, and my, my 25th is coming up, uh, and you go, and people have aged, and sometimes it's hard to recognize them, particularly if they've lost their hair and, and, and whatever, they've got wrinkly faces like I'm getting, and, or, or whatever. There's, there's changes. This is the aging process. It's really wild. I don't, some of these people I don't see for years, and then I see them at the high school reunion, and you're like, wow, you, know, that's, you look different. Usually people look pretty good, and they look how you would expect once you kind of realize it. But I think what Jesus experienced was the inverse of that. He had been raised from the dead, and he had a new body, and it was reverse aging. And so when they saw the, him, they saw someone glorious, someone youthful perhaps, someone full of power and, and glory. So they didn't recognize him. It was kind of like going to the high school reunion, but the opposite. Imagine if you went to your high school reunion, and everyone else is aging, and there's one guy, he's getting younger. Well, essentially, that's what was going on with Jesus. God is the one who gives this body. That's a point that Paul makes to them. God is the one who gives the body to the seed. What you sow is not the body that is to be. It says in verse 38, but God gives it a body as He has chosen. The Lord is the one who gives it a body. And that's a, he, he is perfectly able to do that. There should not be any surprise. We should not ultimately be skeptical. I mean, 
how can you do that? I mean, we know when people go in the ground, they, they eventually go back to the elements. I mean, what's up with that? How can you do it? Well, God is the one who gives it a body. It comes from God. God is the one who's miraculous. Life is a miracle. And sometimes we can take that for granted, and we think, you know, we can think just in terms of natural processes, and that's kind of our, our culture, and, and uh, the theory of evolution and so forth has, has made us think that this is just, everything's just a natural process. We just kind of got there. That's just the laws of physics and stuff kind of deliver you to the point where you have a body, and this is what happens. And we can kind of miss the fact that it's a miracle. Kind of like when we look at a sunset, and uh, it's with the Ross kids, and I don't, I, we must have talked about this at one point, and they said, what a nice earth spin. Well, it's the sunset. You can miss, miss the glory of the sunset thinking in terms of the technicalities of it and the, the different mechanics of it. Well, life is a miracle. Our body is a miracle. God gives it, our body, to us. He gives life. He's created things. And it's really, if we start to probe His creation, it's miraculous. So if God can give us a body now, if He can give us an eye that is just incredible, you think about how your eye works, you look at light, you look at things, and, and somehow it goes in your eye and, and it makes sense to your brain. You actually know that when it goes to your brain, it's upside down, your brain turns it around. They actually can flip people upside down for a while. I forget how they do it. They somehow turn up, the, and your eye will correct and turn it back up after a while. You're some, somehow your brain does that. I mean, just the miracle of sight. If God can do that, if He can do that and give us a body like that, He can certainly and will certainly give us a resurrection body. So let us not be kind of tripped up by the idea that you decompose in the ground and, you know, and how can you end up in a resurrection body. That's not a problem to God. If He can give you your current body, He can give you a glorious body. And He will do that if you are a believer. So God gives it a body. He goes on, Paul goes on, and he starts to look at lessons from nature. If you look in verse 39. He says, For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, the glory of the earthly is another. So there's different types of bodies. So we shouldn't have a hard time understanding that the resurrection body is a different type of body. If God gives flesh to birds, animals, and fish, and it's interesting, this harkens back to, to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the different realms. He creates the sky, He creates the earth, He creates the sea. And then He fills those realms. He fills the sky with birds, He fills the land with animals, He fills the sea with fish. So he makes these different creatures suitable for their habitat. Birds are made to fly. Birds have hollow bones, they're light, they've got feathers and all that, and they can fly. So God makes flesh suitable for their habitat. Animals grow on the ground, and they move around on the ground, and so he makes them have four legs, and they do their animal thing, and so they're suitable for their habitat. Whether they live on flat ground or they're mountain goats, God gives them a body suitable. Fish are made for the sea. They're aerodynamic. They've got uh, fins and stuff, and they can swim really fast. They're, they're given a body of flesh suitable for their habitat. Mankind is given rule and reign over all those realms, and God makes mankind suitable to do that. So if God can do that, if He can make bodies suitable for habitat, then certainly He will make a body suitable for the new heaven and the new earth. The resurrection body. 
He, he's the one who gives the flesh the suitable body. He will give us suitable bodies for the new heaven and the new earth. That's Paul's point. He goes on, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So not only does the body and the flesh differ according to its habitat, but there's different levels of glory. Just look at the heavenly bodies. There's all different levels of glory. So if there's the glory of the natural body, and the natural body is glorious, none of this should be taken to mean that the natural body is somehow lesser or bad or anything. That's not what's said. For a matter of fact, if we look in Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, after he makes man, he says, it's very good. And this is man in his natural state, not the resurrected man. This is man in his natural state. Man as we are, apart from the fall, but very much like us physically, and he says it's very good. It's glorious. The human body is incredible. And we will never exhaust in science and so forth the glory of the human body as we begin to understand it. It is glorious. It is glory. But there are different degrees of glory, just as in the stars. There's this, the glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, the glory of different stars. And so there's the glory of our natural existence. There's a glory of our future heavenly resurrected bodies, our future existence. That's what Paul's saying here. There's different levels of glory. So he's using these pictures from creation to help the Corinthians see that, no, you may think this is ridiculous, but it actually makes a lot of sense, and it fits in right with creation. Just a little sidebar on that. That is what the Lord's like. God is a God who works in themes and analogies, and if we look through the scriptures, we'll see themes reverberating throughout the whole scriptures. If we look in creation, we will see themes and analogs all throughout creation. That's because of intelligent design. That's because there's a God who's an intelligent, awesome being who has orchestrated all things. He knows what he's doing and he has his themes and his, his analogs, his things that are pictures of one, and one of another all throughout his creation. And so Paul, that's why Paul can point to and he's not somehow being less spiritual to point at natural things to make a spiritual point. Because it's all from God. And this is how God works. So he looks at seeds. He looks at fish. He looks at stars. And then he go, moves on, verse 42. Just as it is with these things, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there also is a spiritual body. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Just as it is with these things, seeds and, and fish and birds and so forth and stars and all that, it is with the resurrection body. It's sown uh, perishable. It's raised imperishable. Our current bodies are perishable bodies. They fade. They fade. Once you get to be about the age of 25, it's downhill. It's downhill from there, and, and I know that. I, I was just at the doctor, and I have a knee problem. My dog ran into my knee, and I ran into my dog, and, and my knee's been hurting. I was just sitting in the doctor's office, just, and I, I was uh, not real happy, I guess, because I want to be able to work out and do things, but trusting God in that. Uh, but just sitting there and then watching some of the people in the doctor's office were elderly, and as they were called, just watching them kind of struggle to get out of their chair. And, and the thought occurred to me, you know what? These people not that long ago were my age. Not that long ago they were vibrant. And it would be no problem to get up out of the chair to go in to see the doctor. 
but here they are, elderly, struggling. And it's just the reality of our perishable bodies, our fading, degrading bodies is all around us. And we don't like that, do we? We like to run from it. We like to pretend, but, but it's, you can run, but you can't hide. It's coming. It's coming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to catch up with you. And, and kids, it's not long till it's downhill. I mean, that's the reality. So, yeah. So stop being so happy, will you? It, it's, it's downhill. Our bodies fade. Um, I looked at the statistics of causes of death in Massachusetts to kind of keep on our morbid theme here. 26% of our population in Massachusetts dies of heart disease, 24% of cancer, 6% of stroke, and goes on and on. And then uh, statistics they have that 100% of everybody dies of something at this point. That's the conclusion. Whether it's cancer or heart disease or stroke, nobody at this point, unless Jesus returns, gets out of here alive. Our bodies don't last. As a matter of fact, if you're here bodily when Christ returns, that's not the body you're going to keep. That body's gone. It's, it's, it's going. We're not going to keep it. It's a perishable body. There's no way around that. That's reality. And I'm trying to get used to it, but it is reality for us. Our bodies fade. They're perishable. But, for those who are in Christ, He has already gone before us, paid for our sins, and been raised from the dead victorious, earning immortality for us and for all those who are with him. Earning new bodies that we get to enjoy. So this body will be sown. It is sown perishable. The one we have now, when it talks about being sown, I believe it speaks of not only being sown in the ground, but just existing now. And that was how that word would have been used at that time. We're sown. It means basically we're created as people this way. We're sown perishable. we, We live in perishable stuff. We're sown perishable, but if we're in Christ, we'll be raised, just like the oak tree, imperishable, not fading. There won't be any fading. There won't be getting old in the new body. It's imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. There's there's a lesser glory to our bodies here. There's a weakness. And certainly with sin, there's the shame of sin. It's sown in in dishonor, it's raised in glory. And that word glory is used throughout Scripture, and it hearkens to God's glory. And when God manifests His glory, there's a brightness, and there's a shining around Him. There's light. And so it's sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. And I believe we will shine in glory. There will be a brightness. And we see pictures of this in Scripture. We see Jesus at His transfiguration, where He shines brightly And Moses and Elijah with him shining brightly. We see Moses coming down off the mountain with the veil over his face because of the glory of God, the brightness that shines out from him. We see Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 and and he's shining, he's glorious, his, his hair is white, he's glowing. We look in Scripture and we look at promises like Matthew 13. It says, Then the righteous, all those who are in Christ, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. Daniel 12, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's our future. That's what our resurrection bodies will be like. They will shine in glory. And I believe there will be different degrees of glory. 
I think the scripture is right in teaching that there is a reward. Our ultimate reward is Christ, but there are degrees of reward, and perhaps some of us will shine brighter, but we all will shine with God's glory. So it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. This weak, frail body that we have. Weak physically. Weak in terms of its ability to obey God. Our flesh hangs on us. Our flesh hangs on us and doesn't want to do God's will. It's like an anchor pulling us back. When we're born again, when we come to know Christ, we're given a new nature and the Spirit of God is in us and we're like a sailboat now. The Holy Spirit's like a a wind blowing our sails, but there's an anchor in many ways on us. Heavy anchors of our body. And we groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. Do you guys feel that? Do you experience that? Do you know when you wake up in the morning, I want to live for God, but oh, man, it's so hard. I don't feel like it. I'm being dragged back. That's what it's like. That's the weakness of our body, our current body. It's sown in weakness, but it'll be raised in power. The new body won't be like an anchor. It'll be like outboard engines on the back of the sailboat, pushing us along, living for Him. We'll have no lack. But now we have weak bodies. Then we'll have powerful bodies. Now we have bodies that need to rest. We need Sabbaths. That's the reality. We need at least once a week just to relax and rest ourselves. We need seasons, too. And I'd encourage you guys just to realize that you, you can't... You have to live with the fact of your body. We've got to take care of our bodies. We have to rest our bodies. And we need seasons of rest and refreshment. But the new bodies and the new place will be an endless Sabbath, an endless Sabbath, an endless rest, endless power for us. Sown in weakness, raised in power. He goes on and says, Sown a natural body, it raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The word uh, for natural body is actually a soulish body or soulish being. And a spiritual body is a spiritual being or spiritual body. And so Paul plays off of this phrase. It's sown a soulish body, a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. That's the exact phrase that was used in Genesis when God breathed life into man. And and so Adam became a living being. It's, It's a soulish being or a living being. So Adam became a living being. And so we inherit our natural body from Adam. Adam had a natural body. Um, and we are to be raised a spiritual body. It doesn't mean that we won't be physical. That's not what that's meant. Because we know Christ was physical in his resurrection. It means that it's not just a body of a man. It's a body attuned and empowered by the Holy Spirit. A spiritual body. A body suited for heaven. And the new heaven and the new earth. So it's, it's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. It's raised a spiritual, physical body. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. He was physical. He actually said to his disciples in Luke 24, because they thought he was a ghost, which is a spirit, they thought he was just a spirit, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. He said, I'm not a, I'm not a spirit. I'm flesh and bones. We're going to have flesh and bones. We're going to be physical. We're not going to be floating around in heaven playing harps, sitting on clouds, wearing wings. I think only, the, I don't, actually, I don't see anyone in Scripture except for the seraphim who have wings. So I don't think there's any wings in store for us, though that would be kind of cool to have wings, but I don't think wings are in store. We're going to have physical bodies. Spiritual body. 
a natural body and a spiritual body. We'll get more into what that means when we talk on the section on the second, first and second Adam. But it's raised, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body that's physical, that's suited for heaven. And then Paul moves on in his argument here. If you want to look at verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's that same word, a natural body. It's, it's, I wish the translation had kept that consistent because it's the same phrase. A soulish being, a living being. The first Adam became a natural body. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So a soulish being, and then he became a life-giving, a, a being who gave life, a life-giving spirit. So he goes from a soulish uh, life to a spiritual life giver. From a soulish life to a spiritual life giver. Jesus is the spiritual life giver. And that's the wording in Genesis we see. Adam was giving a soulish body. Adam was given the body that we have, though without sin. He had a soulish body, a natural body. That's how he was made, and there's nothing wrong with that. But Adam, Adam was put in the garden, and he was called to obey God. And in the garden there were two trees, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he was put in the garden, and he was to obey God. He was not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He was stand, to stand by the word of God alone. He was to obey God and stand by his word. And God had Adam on probation, basically, in the garden. And the enemy, Satan, was allowed to come in in the form of a serpent to test him. And to test him about what God said. And to see whether he would stand by what God said. Even though he was given dominion over the earth. Adam's given dominion over the earth. He's called to be a ruler. He's called to make decisions, folks. It's not that he's to be passive in that. To make decisions, but to do it under the submission to God. He was called, in a sense, to speak truth to to the devil. And in a sense, to to be victorious over him. And so the devil comes and says, did God say? And Eve is deceived and her husband with her. And so he fails the test. He never gets to eat of the tree of life. He doesn't get to eat of that tree and live forever. For we know after he makes that decision, after he says, uh, after he falls and disobeys and does not honor God, does not stand on God's word, He's banished from the garden, and he experiences spiritual death. And then what happens to the tree of life in the garden? Do they leave it open for Adam to go back in? No. Why? Because God says, I don't want him to live forever. He's become like this. He mustn't live forever, so it's closed off. So Adam does not experience immortality. He never goes from a natural body to a spiritual body. He had a mortal body. He, he was not immortal in that sense. And that's our heritage We are sons and daughters of Adam. We are like him. We have a natural body. Now it talks about the second Adam. The first Adam is a natural body. The second Adam is Jesus. And just as God does things and themes, we talked about he does that, the same thing with Jesus. There's the first Adam, put in probation, put in the garden, called to honor God. There's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's the, the tree of life. And the second Adam comes. And he lives, in a sense, in the garden. And the tempter comes. 
and says, does God say? Does God say? Does God say? And what does Jesus do? It is written. It is written. It is written. He doesn't sit there and reason on his own. He submits unto the Father. This is the word of God. And he rebukes the devil. And he's victorious over the devil. And not only at that instance, in that picture of he was successful where Adam, but his whole life was like that. Even to the point of death on a cross. So it wasn't just about submitting to God in the temptation, though that was significant. He submitted to God to the point of death on the cross, bearing our sins. He's God, the Son. He's holy. He's perfect. And yet he's going to take on himself vile, foul sins. We know our sins. We know the things we've done. We know the things we've thought. We know we have a taste of God's goodness in his holiness. And so we can get a picture to some degree what it meant for the Son of God to bear our sins on the cross and to bear the wrath of God and as we talk about in communion, be separated from God. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And He bore our sins and He paid for them. Philippians 2 then teaches us, therefore God exalted Him to the highest place. He earned the right to eat from the tree of life and to have an eternal body, an eternal life. What Adam didn't do and didn't complete and failed in, he did. And he has won for us the tree of life. For we read in Revelation, what's in heaven? What's in the new Jerusalem? The tree of life is there for the healing of the nations. And now we partake of that tree of life. Now we can go from the natural body that Adam have, had to the spiritual everlasting body that Christ has won for us. And he is the first fruits of it. He has done it. He has done it all. He is the second Adam, the successful one, who did all things right and earned that right. Not us. We didn't. But God, in his incredible mercy and love and grace, has chosen to include us in the Son. He's looked at us and said, I want not just a couple. I want a lot. I want people from every tribe and language and nation. I want people from the Merrimack Valley to be part of this. I want them to be in my Son. And so He's worked in our hearts by the Spirit through the Word of God that we might understand and behold this one, our righteousness, the second Adam who is perfect. And put our trust not in ourselves. And not put our trust in the first Adam, natural humanity. Put our trust in the second Adam, Christ. And, and, and by His merits, by His obedience, by His death and resurrection, to find for ourselves Christ our righteousness. It's all of Him and none of us. There's nothing we do. There's nothing, now, now there's life that comes and there's things we do as a result, but there's nothing we do to earn that. We have failed in Adam. We failed the test. You got an F. There's nothing you can do. You can't do a makeup. You got an F. That's, that's what you're stuck with. It's only if someone else comes in and replaces the test for you. That's what Christ has done. So it's faith. We trust Him. We turn from ourselves. Self-effort. We turn from sin and a life of sin and a life of rebellion. And that even itself is a gift from God that enables us to do that. We turn and we trust in Him. He has done it. And He wins for us forgiveness and He wins for us new life. Does that make sense? Is that clear? I think that's what Paul means when he talks about this first Adam, this second Adam. And we are in Him. And so he can say with assurance, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Just as we have experienced being in Adam and his body, we shall have this new body. We shall indeed. 
And so Paul, through this argument, at the end of this section in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, he concludes by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In light of this truth, in the light of the fact that Christ has won this for us, and we are in Him, be immovable, be steadfast, Live now for the Lord. Abound in the work of the Lord. Paul doesn't want, to, want us just to say, oh, that's cool. I like that idea. Second Adam, I'm in Christ. That's cool. He wants it to produce fruit in our lives. He wants it to make us immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He wants it to create zeal in our lives. See, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. When we grasp that truth, That it is sure. It's a promise here. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Maybe just take time this week just to to camp on that and tell yourself that truth. If I'm in Christ, I shall bear the image of the man of heaven. I will. It's definite. It's been accomplished. The first fruits have already come. He's been raised from the dead. And He's reigning right now. And I belong to Him. And I shall bear that image because of Him. Not because of me, but because of Him. Let that truth impact you. Because if it starts to impact you, it will change your life. It'll change with you and how you live now. It'll cause you to be able to rest and realize He's done it. I don't need to be striving to somehow earn heaven. I don't need some level of holiness to get me there. And God cares about holiness. He wants to work holiness in our lives, but we've got to make sure we don't get the cart ahead of the horse. Jesus has already done it. He is our righteousness. We rest in that. We rest in that. But then He comes and He lives in us. And because of His life in us, bubbling up, Through us, there is holiness and there is life. But it's not so that we can earn it. It's because He has already done it. So let that sure promise that we shall bear the image of the man of heaven influence our lives and cause us to rest. Let it cause us to be steadfast and immovable. If the band could come up as we get ready to close. Let it cause us to be steadfast and immovable. Paul wants us, the Lord wants us not to be shaken from that place of rest in what Christ has done. Not to be shaken from trusting Him. And we experience lots of things that shake. That's life. That's life now in these weak bodies. And the good thing is is that God is sovereign over that. And God's designed it this way. God has promised to use the very shaking to teach us what really matters. And to teach us what is unshakable. That's why He allows us to be shaken. But it can be hard. And so truths like this are meant to function in our lives in a way where they cause us not to be shaken. They cause us to be able to be immovable and steadfast. So don't let other things shake you from standing on this wonderful promise and resting in it. Don't let the world, the flesh, the devil distract you from the firm assurance and joy of resting in this unshakable promise. Don't let aging distract you. Don't let idols promise you something better. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than Christ. There's nothing better than to be in Him. There's nothing better than to get a new resurrection body. So let us not set our affections on idols. Hey, there's lots of great things we can enjoy 
as worship. But let us not find our affections drawn after cheap, lesser things. When we have something awaiting us that's far grander and glorious, and the things we do now count for that future. So be steadfast, immovable, unshakable. When you're going through trials, when you go through the loss of a loved one perhaps, let this truth fill you and change you. When you face weakness and infirmity, sickness, and we're all, we're all going to get sick, and we're all going to get to the point either now or later where we're frail. And, and Lord willing, as we grow as a church, we're going to be able to walk through life together and grow old together and bury one another and watch that process. But to do that in hope. And to do it in a way where we're not, when someone gets cancer, we're not fretting, oh no, oh no, oh no. But we recognize sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown perishable, raised imperishable. We have a body that awaits us, a new life that awaits us, so we can deal with infirmity. We can deal with aging. We can deal with sickness. And we can offer the world something that is so radically different. Because all they got to hold on to is this life. All they got to hold on to are these fading bodies. That's the industry of, of Botox and all that stuff. Trying to stop what's inevitable. We have something to offer them that is substantial, that's meaningful, that's true, that we can stand on. So let us be unshakable, immod- immovable, steadfast, holding on to this. We will surely bear the image of the man of heaven. So let us abound in the work of the Lord, Paul says. Let us abound in the work. This awaits us, and there's a reward. This stuff is real. It's not a joke. It's not a fantasy. It's real. So we sure should live our lives to the max in the Lord, awaiting this hope, knowing that what we do now will count. There's a reward. Yes, we all will receive a glorious body, but there'll be a reward. Perhaps some will shine greater than others. So let us live for that. Let us live now. The Lord has things now to do. That's the question. What is the work of the Lord? Paul tells us to abound in the work of the Lord. In light of this resurrection promise, to abound in the work of the Lord. What is that work? Well, I think it's manifold. There's a lot of things the Lord's doing. But I think one thing in particular he has his eyes fixed on, and that's his bride. That's his bride. And when I say that, I don't mean the local church as an institution. I don't even mean our schedule. I mean the people of God, the gathered people of God living before him and making him known. In all the different contexts, whether it be Sunday, whether it be you at work, all these things, that is the work of the Lord. And in light of 1 Corinthians, we know that's the lesson, because that's what Paul's wanting to bring to them over and over again, the importance of the local church. And how you relate to one another means everything. That's what he's saying to them. So in light of this promise, in light of this promise of the resurrection, let us abound in the work of the Lord. Let us love one another dearly from the hearts. Let us seek to build the church up. Let us grow. Let us make them known. Let us tell others. Let us abound in the work of the Lord. Martin Luther said, if we consider the greatness and glory of the life we shall have when we have risen from the dead, it would not be difficult at all for us to bear the concerns of this world. If I believe the word, I shall on the last day after the sentence has been pronounced not only gladly have suffered ordinary temptations, insults, and imprisonment, but I shall also say, oh, that I did not throw myself under the feet of all the godless for the sake of the great glory which I now see revealed and which has come to me through the merit of Christ. Let us have no regrets on that day because by grace we have looked at that promise and we've put our hope there and we've abounded in the work of the Lord. 
Let us do that as a church. Let us give ourselves to what God is doing. The other week, the guys gathered and we spoke of our mission and our vision. And I think this is a picture, a part, a significant part of the work of the Lord for us. You can check this out on our website. This is something we're working through. And this is something I believe the Lord has given us as a church, a picture of what the work of the Lord looks like in our midst. Our mission to know and love God supremely and to love and serve others effectively by celebrating, proclaiming, and living by the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our vision that God has, I believe, given us for the work of the Lord for our time is to see an authentic, thriving, Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, biblically sound church devoted to the supremacy of God and the centrality of the Gospel in all areas of life. A church led by a diverse and united team of elders and served by a gifted, trained, and qualified cadre of small group leaders and ministry assistants that together equip, support, and employ every member to know and love God deeply, to love and serve their families, their church, and their neighbors effectively, successfully ministering to and reaching diverse members of our community for Christ, modeling healthy, gospel-centered church life to New England Christendom, and propagating this model through church plants, numerous church plants, into other communities throughout New England. That's a picture, I believe, for us, what the work of the Lord is. And in light of the promise of the resurrection, let us be steadfast, immovable, unshakable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I just pray more than anything that the promise, the sure promise of new bodies and a new life in you, that you have one, O Jesus, would cause us to be immovable, unshakable, steadfast, would give us the power and the ability to endure trials, to endure weakness, to endure this body that's fading, not trying to hold on to this life, but abounding in the work of you, Lord, and for you. So Lord, I pray, give us eyes and ears to hear, give us faith to believe, and produce fruit as a result, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let us stand and close in worship song.